Welcome to the Critical Futures Podcast. It's critical because the time is now to conjure the world and communities we want to live and thrive in. But it's also futurity, or the intentional imagining and materializing of liberated futures where freedom from oppression, trauma, violence, and discrimination are realized. In this series, we chat with members of the Anti-Racism Consortium in partnership with the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. These are conversations between organizations and their community partners to highlight how to deeply work with community in a way that shares power and moves us all towards liberation. In today's episode, we chat with Melody Goodman, Vice Dean for Research, Professor of Biostatistics, and Director of the Center for Anti-Racism, Social Justice, and Public Health at the NYU School of Public Health. Our conversation is moderated by Dr. Keon Gilbert, Associate Professor of Public Health and Social Justice and Director of Equity and Policy at the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity. Thank you, Dr. Goodman, for joining us. Um, so, you know, we really just want to think about this as a, as a conversation about anti-racism um, and health, anti-racism and public health and health policy. Um, also even thinking about topics related to anti-racism in the healthcare system. And so when you think about your work um, in the space of anti-racism and health or health policy and research, um, what are the core things or key things that come to come to mind? I think I've been trying to push my work to focus on solutions, so less about defining the problems um, and more about understanding the factors that contribute to those and the potential ways in which we can address um, issues that we're trying to um, work on. Um, I think my work is varied. I focus on health inequities broadly um, and doing a lot of work in the anti-racism space. Um, a lot of work around measurement and trying to think about how do we measure um, and assess things like structural racism, interpersonal racism, everyday racism, um, and things like that. Um, and then really bring into the forefront um, engagement as a science so that we're engaging the right partners um, in the work that we're trying to do so that um, the people that we're trying to help are part of developing and implementing the potential solutions. Okay. So a couple of things that um, I've heard you say is moving beyond definitions of um, either racism or anti-racism. You've also talked a, a lot about measurement. You also talked about the the role of engaging communities, and um, because I know some of your work that has folk that has um, been centered or contexts have varied from communities thinking about segregation, thinking about healthcare, um, thinking about specific health outcomes as well. And so, when you think about sort of the the breadth and scope of all of the things that you do. How do you manage those and how do you sort of bring them together? Um, I think it's important to work on problems, issues, work. I don't know what I want to call it. That is timely, pressing and important. 
Um, and I think when you're working on things that are timely and important, they become interconnected just because of time, place, and space. Um, and so while it may seem like some of my work is, you know, all over the place, if I'm trying to help, for example, Black communities in St. Louis, then I need to help them address all of the myriad of concerns around health um, that they think are um, important in that time, place, and space. Um, and so I often think of the connections around place, um, around populations, and I think around time, if that makes sense. Those do make sense. And, you know, one of the questions that we wanted to raise with others that are participating in this podcast series is thinking about the most pressing issue. And one of the things that you just noted is that you really try to allow the community to help define what the most pressing issue and sort of the intersections of their interests, time and other factors that, that contribute to context. And so maybe talk to us a little bit about that process of what are some skills or tools that you utilize to be able to help identify the most pressing issue? I think one of the the things that I'm probably most known for is some work around trying to enhance the infrastructure for community academic um, partnerships um, and trying to increase research literacy among community members and potential community partners. And the reason why I feel that is so important is because if you don't understand what research can and cannot do, it's hard for you to participate in the development of something meaningful, meaning that, you know, often we're not finding the answer <laughs> um, or, or the, the cure all. We may find, you know, a pathway, a mechanism, a potential intervention that may work. But a lot of our work is incremental and moving the needle slightly, whereas I think um, you know, community members want stuff done quickly, move fast, let's get it done. Um, let's, let's have uh, change be enacted quickly. And I think understanding the research process, understanding the importance of collecting empirical data and how that data can inform policy and practice, um, but also how that data can be interpreted for good or nefarious reasons and who should be interpreting the data and providing context to it. I think it's important for community members to have those skills so that when they're asked to participate in research or partner in research, they have a clear sense of what the potential benefits and risk are um, to themselves personally and to their communities as a whole. Yeah, very interesting. I, and I know from your work, one of the things that you did was to develop a, a training program, uh, well, two different training programs. Maybe if you could tell us a little bit more about those two training programs, the genesis of them, um, what's happening with them um, currently. So uh, we started the Community Research Fellows Training Program. It is turning 10 years old in St. Louis in 2023. Um, and we've trained multiple cohorts of community members. It's designed after a Master's of Public Health curriculum it is not meant to be a master's of public health degree, but to give community members the basic knowledge that one would need, uh, definitions and vocabulary to have an informed conversation um, about research and the research process. Um, that program has been adapted in Mississippi. It will turn nine years old in Mississippi in 2023. Um, and we're having our first cohort in New York City 
2023. I'm super excited about this because we're going to run the three city cohorts simultaneously in 2023 and then do some sessions um, across all three cohorts um, so that we can compare and contrast what's going on in the different cities. That work originally started from um, some NIH funding um, called the Community Alliance of Research Empowering Social Change, where our community partners asked to be trained <laughs> Um, on these uh, on these methods, and they said, you know, we'd love to partner you with with you on research, Dr. Goodman, but we don't really know what research is or how to do it. So how can we be full partners with you? And I thought that was profound and important. And if we work at academic institutions and we train people, that it was important for us to provide this type of training. Um, and I think the places that have implemented this program have seen the benefits of having informed community partners and what that can do for your science and your research. I've also developed the quantitative public health data literacy training. I think um, the COVID pandemic made me realize that while research literacy is important, um, data literacy is becoming ever more um, important. The Economist in 2017 said data is the world's um, most important resource. I don't know if it's still the world's most important resource with oil being the way it is, but it's definitely one of the world's most important <laughs> resources is what I will say. Um, and we know that data is being collected in all kinds of different ways and being used in, in all kinds of different ways. And I think what the pandemic demonstrated is if you don't have the ability to understand data, you often don't have the ability to draw your own conclusions beyond what people are telling you that data say. Um, and often the data story is not around black and brown folks until it becomes a necessity. And so our ability to read and understand data, particularly when we are excluded or determining if we're included or, or excluded, who that data is applicable to and generalizable to are important points, but it's also important for us to be able to form our own conclusions because whoever, you know, I'm a biostatistician and I often say I'm a narrator. I get to tell a story with my data, right? And whoever is the narrator gets to tell their version of the story with the data but you should be informed enough to either agree or disagree with that narrative. Um, and you should be able to draw your own conclusions, but we don't, unfortunately in this country, we often don't train people with the types of skills that are necessary to make those informed decisions. Um, and so the data literacy training was, was designed to fill that gap. To date, we've had three cohorts. They were all over a hundred in size. Our first cohort was focused on students, our second cohort was focused on um, the lay public. Um, and our third cohort um, was focused on the public health workforce. You'd be surprised how many people in the public health workforce were not trained in public health particularly, um, and then don't have some of these data skills. And so if these are the people that are communicating the message, it's important that they want to understand the data and are able to communicate it fully. So what's one of the interesting things about your discussion about the training programs and it's one of its areas of focus on um, data literacy, data training, understanding data in lots of different ways. It certainly contributes to one of the um, key areas of your research in terms of building a data infrastructure and also sort of combining that with um, improving or enhancing academic and community partnerships. Taking the COVID-19 pandemic as an example, if we if people utilize data more effectively during the pandemic, 
do you think we would have been able to mitigate some of the damage and issues um, that that were brought about because of the COVID-19 pandemic? I do, but I don't have empirical data to support that. I have an N of one study in that I'm a Novid. I've never had COVID. Um, and I look at the data every day and I think I made really informed decisions for myself about how to protect myself um, throughout the pandemic. And I wish that everyone else had that same level of literacy and ability to do what I did to navigate um, through this um, sort of pandemic and, and really be able to participate in society, right? It's not about not doing things, but, but making for informed decisions. I do think we would, have, we would have been able to mitigate things if people understood data because the initial data made it seem like COVID was only going to impact older folks, um, but demographers could have talked about population distributions in different countries and density and all of these other things that um, give some context to some of that data that we were um, seeing. I think... Um, until, you know, thank goodness for Dr. Kamara Jones and the APHA really focusing on making racism a public health issue because had it not been for some public health departments declaring racism a public health issue, we wouldn't have seen data stratified by race and ethnicity to be able to see the disparities that existed. And, and the nice thing, I shouldn't say nice thing, but how it sort of works is one, per, one health department does it um, and then it sort of pushes other you know, health departments to sort of look at that data. Um, but I think there was a time period where no one was really concerned about racial ethnic differences, differences by um, sex. Um, we were just looking at age. And so I think having ability to understand data, having ability to understand um, population health, the, you know, I work in a school of global public health. The idea that an infectious disease is in China and it's not going to come here, that is an unrealistic um, expectation. I live in New York City. <laughs> we are a global city. People enter and exit our city every day. It's an unrealistic expectation that um, these fake boundaries that we have drawn for geographic purposes would somehow protect us from an infectious airborne disease. And just having some of that data literacy, I think, would have helped people understand those concepts better. It's a really great example of thinking about sort of how everyday individuals who don't work in public health or healthcare or other health related sciences um, could have used more information to, to, you know, make decisions for themselves and their families and their communities at large, perhaps a little bit differently. So maybe even sort of thinking about this from the health of the department perspective and sort of their some of their actions, some of their inactions, failures, the ways they distributed resources. Um, it certainly seemed that some of those choices and also not utilizing data is an act of racism in some ways. Um, would you agree, disagree? I think it depends on the circumstance. I do think the acts, the act of not using racism is the act of not using data is racism in some circumstances. However, the act of using improper data can also be racism in circumstances, in some circumstances, right? So data that is not generalizable, data that has a lot of missing information, that is structurally missing, right? So, so I think it can work in both ways, but I do think having information and not making informed decisions on it 
it's not just racist, it's just this bad public policy, right? Like it, it in fact, it impacts us all. It doesn't just impact um, those who are sort of at the bottom of the hierarchy. Yeah, and it, and it actually, your last comment really ties to um, a part of Kamara Jones's discussion and description um, about the impact of racism and it saps the strength of us all where it really debilitates all of us in a, in a number of different ways from, from utilizing the best science, utilizing the best data, utilizing the best skills and tools that we have available to make the best decisions or to um, be able to even communicate with the general public about how they can try to figure out how to make the best decisions as well. So that's, a, I think, a really nice sort of tie-in to, you know, not only her discussion of, of racism, but uh, others as well. Um, I mean, we could talk about this all, all, all afternoon, um, but I do wanna talk a little bit more about um, community engagement with you and um, your partnerships. We can talk about some examples. And so maybe let's just start there with, as a biostatistician, um, we don't typically in public health think of biostatisticians as people who are interested in, in community engagement or participating in community engaged partnerships, leading them. Um, and you're even taking that to a, a, another level in terms of even measuring partnerships. And so let's just start sort of from the beginning. How as a biostatistician did you get involved in community engagement? Um, I was on a training grant. I was on a training grant that was designed to be interdisciplinary. Um, it was across all the departments in our School of Public Health, and it was designed to train students on community-based participatory research. I don't think anyone thought a biostatistician was going to be that interested <laughs> um, in community-based participatory research, and, and probably most of us should not be doing this kind of work. I mean, I definitely like numbers more than I like um, humans, but I think um, <laughs> I think to um, to address the questions that I was interested in addressing, I didn't have the data to do so. And I knew that in order to collect that data, I was gonna have to talk to people. Like I was gonna have to get out and talk to people and understand one, how to ask the right questions, where to go to, you know, get people to respond to those questions. Um, and so it just made sense. I will say overall, I definitely think it's made me a better scientist in how I think about, you know, which research questions I wanna address, which hypothesis I'm trying to test, how I'm trying to test them. Can I implement this in a real world setting? I think we have this framework of research that we do things in a laboratory in these really, I don't know how you say it, pristine settings that are unrealistic in the real world. And so I think it's made me think about the context of my work more clearly and not trying to design things that work in a lab, but that wouldn't work um, out in practice. But I think the movement to measure engagement has really been from some of my frustration around you know, people have been doing engagement work decades before I jumped into the field. I feel like there's a bunch of people now behind us. I can't believe I'm a senior person, but now that I'm senior, there's a bunch of junior folks behind us. And I think every time we're approaching engagement, it feels like we're starting from scratch. You know, we have best practices and lessons learned, but we don't really have, you know, if you're working with this type of population on this type of issue, you know, these are the approaches, these are evidence-based strategies that work to engage, you know, these types of, we don't know that. 
And I think the only way to get that is to be able to collect empirical data. And so that's why I've been interested in measure development of how do we measure the way that community engagement impacts both the scientific process and scientific discovery. So, and how do you feel that community engagement is going to be um, or should be an important factor in creating strategies um, to achieve anti-racist health policies in an anti-racist healthcare system? I think we have to stop subscribing to the idea that the best knowledge is in the ivory tower. That is a component of knowledge. Like we do need people who were trained in methods and, you know, know a way of systematically collecting data. And, but there's also knowledge that's lived experience and no PhD can tell someone what it's like to live with a disease that they've never lived with, to be a caretaker for someone if they've never served in that capacity. Um, and so to value the other forms of knowledge generation, I think is really important. Um, and that is where I think the contribution of engagement um, to our work is really seen. I don't feel like I answered your question. So if you want to ask it again, you can. You can. <laughs> so, so the question was about how community engagement as a strategy um, can help us to achieve an anti-racist, well, to help us um, have anti-racist health policies and an anti-racist healthcare system. And you began with the recognition or acknowledgement that not all of the solutions and answers are in the ivory tower. Yeah, and I think I think engagement is is part of how we, you know, what we know from our ivory tower is that multidisciplinary or transdisciplinary work is most effective. Team science. Um, is the best approach to addressing public health questions, right? And I think for me, now I think about who has to be on the team. And I think about all the academic disciplines I need, but I also think about all the other community perspectives um, that are important. I think to to understand how racism is operating, you have to speak to the people that are impacted and experience it. Um, and, you know, to be able to change those dynamics, I don't see how, I think it's important for us to, to understand the variety of ex experiences, how racism manifests in different structures, systems, and ways that, you know, impact us all in sort of different ways. And I think it's important for us to bring all of these different lived experiences, real, you know, real world scenarios and our academic knowledge um, to bear to dismantle a system um, that is structured and designed in a certain way um, and has been embedded in our society for so long um, that is going to take a real scientific team, including scientists who are trained um, uh, in academic institutions and scientists of the sidewalk, as they're often called, um, together um, to address these issues. Give us a couple of other examples of some of your partnerships and or, and or collaborations um, with various communities. Um, I think the work that was most memorable to me, and maybe it was because it was my first time that I was able to accomplish something that I didn't think um, I was able to do as a junior faculty member, um, 
I was working in Long Island and we collaborated with a community-based organization called the Latino Health Initiative of Suffolk County. They were interested in doing um, a community health assessment in Brentwood, Long Island, which was a predominantly Latino, Latina, Latinx community um, in Long Island that also has a substantial number of undocumented um, residents. Um, and we were in collaboration with this organization. We were also in collaboration with the county um, health department. Um, and the goal was for us to, one, get an assessment of, you know, where people, you know, what the sort of lay of the land was, a surveillance assessment, but also to make sure people knew where they could access care um, if they needed it. Um, and I think, um you know, we helped them develop this survey instrument. It was in English and Spanish. They went door to door and it was community members who lived in Brentwood that went door to door. And they were able to get, I've never seen a response rate, like no academic is ever going to have a response rate that these people were able to have because these were their neighbors. So they opened their door for them. They answered their questions. Um, I don't think we would have ever had a sample with that number, that percentage of undocumented residents, you know, participating in a study that came from the county health department, right, which is a government, you know, part of a, a government agency. And I think to me that showed the success of working on an issue that was important to that community. That was something that that community organization felt like they needed for their community. Um, and giving the community members the skills they need to do the work. So we weren't in the lead as academics. You know, we were we were carrying the water and the clipboards and being the support staff, letting them take the lead in collecting the data. And I think, you know, for me, one, it was rewarding, but it was also really educational to see that changing that dynamic changed the data I was able to get. I'm a processor, I'm a nerd. If I get good data, I'm excited about, you know, how that came about. And I think for me, that was the, the turning point to, this is the approach I want to use because I get really good data. Um, when we do this type of stuff. That's a really good example of power sharing and recognizing that as an academic, as a person with this advanced degree, you don't have to be in charge. Um, and so, I mean, was that sort of a, a, a lesson that you took away from, from that experience about power sharing? Yeah, I definitely don't have to be in charge. I prefer not to be in charge most of the time. Um, I do think when community members are in the driver's seat, the research just moves differently. It has a different vibe and feel to it. And I don't know if I can explain it to someone who hasn't done community-engaged research, but it also, like as an academic, it provides me with sort of a energy that I need to keep going and keep moving forward because I know that we're working on something that people want the answer to in real time. Um, whereas a biostatistician, I can work on plenty of things that no one will ever care about, um, but I think maybe are insanely important, right, about some statistical method. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, 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 a, it's a good point of discussion. And we all come to these partnerships, these collaborations with our own priorities. And part of the benefit of collaborating and partnering with others is to figure out where there's common interest and, and, and some common goals so that it's not that you completely leave your priorities behind, but you help to establish new ones based off your priorities as you're coming to the table with, with, with others. And I think that's a really beautiful part about 
community engagement, um, partnership development, and other forms of collaboration. And I would just add, I think the one thing I've learned about engagement over the years that I've done it now is that all partners have to benefit, but they don't have to all get the same thing or want the same thing out of the partnership, right? Like as long as everyone gets their sort of needs met, um, we don't all actually, I mean, we have to have a, a like a North Star that's common, but we all don't have to actually need the exact same things to make that partnership work. It's a very interesting point. So not everyone has to get the same thing, but everyone should find some benefit is, is what I'm hearing. And so when you think about the roles that particular partners have played, um, how does that sort of take shape in some of some of the examples of partnerships and collaborations that you get? So some of our so I collaborate a lot with community based organizations who often have um, grants like um, grants or contracts uh, where they have to have some evaluation piece of their program or project, right? So these are not, these typically are not research grants, but more like programmatic projects, real in the field work uh, being done. But often those grants require some sort of evaluation, some sort of report back. Um, And we find that people who are great in the field (laughs) either don't like, don't care, don't want to do the data, you know, they're not, that's not their juge in life. Whereas, you know, that's for every, for me, that's everything. helping them do what they already do better, you know, so that they're able to figure out ways to make their reporting easier so that, you know, just helping them build what they need. Um, And so for for some people, it may be that they need us to build a database that collects the exact metrics that they need to report annually to their funder um, in a way, you know, right, you know, in the right format um, that they need. Um, Someone else may need um, you know, direct services to their patient population or their, you know, their sort of community population. Um, academics, we need often random things that don't matter to anyone else, right? Like publications and grant funding, right? And so, but but what I've noticed now is like everyone can actually get what they need if they're upfront about what those things are. Um, if they don't violate other people's needs, right? Like, as, you know, as long as you getting what you want doesn't stop someone else getting, you know, another partner getting what they want or need. Um, and often it's going to be like that because very few people want the things that academics want. Like, they don't need these things that we often need. Um, but we can give them things that they do need um, that are easy for us to do while we can also get the things we need. I hope that makes sense because I do think that's really important for people to understand that just being honest and upfront about what everyone's needs are and putting everything on the table and figuring out how everyone will benefit and how to make that happen, to me has made partnerships way more successful than trying to say at the end, we're going to reach this common goal that's going to benefit everyone. No, those those things do make sense. And I mean, I've often heard you describe um, sort of your key lessons also, you framed them, you know, everything you, you learned about either being an academic or being a community engaged researcher, you learn from your women, was it your mom, your grandmother, I forgot. It's, it's a poem by Robert Fulgram called Everything I Need to Learn, I Learned in Kindergarten. Um, and it, to me, you know, when people say, how are you a biostatistician doing this work, doing community engagement work? I mean, community engagement is like, be a good human. Don't hit people. 
put things back where you found them. Don't take things that you aren't yours. Say sorry when you hurt someone. You know, and though, you know, that's sort of what the poem is. But it's true, like academics and academic institutions fail at a lot of those sort of golden rule principles. But it doesn't take like five years of academic training to get a PhD to know how to not take things that aren't yours, <laughs> share, put things back when you found them and say sorry when you hurt for someone, right? And so people who are interested in this work, it's not like academic training is like how to be a good human. <laughs> 101, um, I guess. <laughs> and so, yeah, I always say everything I need to learn about community engagement I learned in kindergarten. Anything else you would like to share about sort of key points, key principles, key values of community engagement? Um, I think I've said it, but I think I will emphasize that I think community engagement has really made me a better scientist. Um, thinking about, you know, making my work impactful um, and putting it in the right place and space for the right people. Um, but I'll be honest that, you know, it takes more time to build a partnership. Things don't always go the way you want them to go. Um, all relationships don't work out. We <laughs> we know that, right? So all partnerships don't work out. Um, but it's important to not just do it for the grant or do it just for the... Because um, I find if that's your goal, you're going to be disappointed. But if your goal is like community improvements, you know, doing good work, um, then you can find satisfaction in this type of stuff. Um, we're going to come back to a couple of those points a, a little bit later, but I do want to ask um, in terms of a couple more questions about anti-racist policy, research, and structural racism in the healthcare system. So given your work, given many of the issues that you've, um, you know, created research projects, built partnerships um, from, when you think about radically reimagining our, the ways that we develop and implement policies, the ways that we have structured or the lack of structure to access and utilization of healthcare, um, racism is, is embedded into all of that. How would you articulate radically reimagining our health policies and healthcare systems to be anti-racist? So I think we would have to actually have a healthcare system. So in this country, we have a sick care system, pretty much. Uh, most people go to the doctor when they're sick. Um, and I think we would have to have a healthcare system <laughs> where our, our healthcare system is designed to keep people healthy and keep people out of hospitals and things um, like that which is a total reimagining of how we even think about, you know, health, I think, fundamentally um, in this country. I think we would also have to think about health being a right, which, you know, I don't know. And, you know, education is a right. We've still screwed that up. So I don't, I don't even know if making it a right is the right, <laughs> is the solution. But, you know, we should think about if it should be a right and then how that, um, how we would sort of handle that. I think, I think in the meantime, we need to focus on what we, you know, I could reimagine, but I think in the meantime, it's important to focus on us addressing the system as it is and the issues at hand, um, because I think we're far away from a, a reimagined system. So when you think about some of the work that you've been involved in and helped to support, um, how does um, anti-racism or 
center in terms of more specifically policy change. So how have you thought about, conceptualized, helped to advance thinking about um, anti-racist health policy? Um, so my specific work is a, is a real sort of niche part of health policy, but I've been doing a lot of work using electronic health record data. Um, who, where do I start? There's so many issues <laughs> um, with electronic health record data. One, you know, the people who are entering the data um, are doing it for healthcare purposes um, and often don't know or maybe even don't think about that people are in the back end or using that data um, for research. Um, I think in terms of policy, one of the things we're noticing is that, and we just released a paper in JAMA Open about structural missingness. So differences in who has information in the electronic health record by sex, by ethnicity, by race, and by preferred language spoken. Um, and the project that I'm on, you know, the purpose is to design an algorithm that would go through the medical records and pick people who should be um, screened for hereditary cancers. And the whole point was to reach people who weren't, you know, currently being reached by the by the existing systems. But the lack of data made it so that the algorithm mainly picked up English speaking white women <laughs> um, at the expense of other populations due to the missing data. So the algorithm just couldn't work um, for those patients. So I think I think we have to really think about our use of electronic health record data because people are using that data to make health policies. Um, and just in my own use of it, I have serious concerns about generalizability, structural racism embedded in that data. Are we using data that inherently is racist to try to address this? Like it's just a lot of issues. Um, and I think electronic health records in principle were designed so that we could look at things across health systems and have, you know, better connections. Um, but when you, from a biocitizen's perspective, that's all fake. Like those systems do not give you the same thing. They don't operate the same ways. Epic in one place is different than Epic in another place. And so for me, it's more about the implementation of policies, right? Like the government sort of mandated that we move to electronic health records, right? It was supposed to be better for everyone, but it's not, right? And so we really need to think about the policies and the ways that they've been implemented um, and how we can make sure that they work for everyone, not just some of the population. That fits squarely within lots of conversations about, um, I mean, not, not only collection of data, the use of data, but also algorithms and inherent racism and structural racism in algorithms. And part of the, one of the things that you pointed to is one of the issues and concerns that people need to be aware, aware of is the, you know, that there is structural missingness in these data. And that is perhaps leading to differential decision making in lots of ways, not only at, at a federal sort of policy level, but even within institutions themselves. Um, and actually, one of the next questions is about thinking about examples, thinking about recommendations, um, strategies to address um, structural racism um, or thinking about what structural changes are needed to create 
anti-racist health policy or and or healthy anti-racist healthcare system. So I recently, uh, the project that I just spoke about, we gave a presentation earlier this week. Um, and I like off the cuff said, and we don't measure racism in the electronic health record. And some really smart person in the audience said, well, how would you do that? Right. Um, and they were unprepared for me because I was like, well, <laughs> here's what I would do. Uh, Dr. Rachel Hardiman has proposed several measures of sexual racism that that could use zip code and census-based data that would be easy to add to electronic health records in which we had patient zip code, which we often do have. Um, now, when you go to the doctor, they do this three-question depression screen. I'm probably going to now ruin it for everyone because um, my doctor hates when I go because I go, I'm not depressed. And she goes, you still have to answer these three questions. Um, but they do this three question depression screener. Why couldn't we come up with like a three to five question racism screener where when you went in, they just sort of <laughs> asked you a couple of questions about your experience with racism that day or that week. I don't know the right thing, but I do think sometimes we think these things are impossible. I agree with you. Why can't we, you know, have a screener for, for other structural issues as well? Then the next question is, Recommendation strategies for creating an anti-racist health policy or, or addressing racism within um, um, systems for systems change. Yeah, I think, you know, this is a broader question. And I think our team has really been trying to adapt the framework from Kilborn and colleagues, where they talk about the phases of addressing um, health disparities research and really move that into a anti-racism framework. And so we've been asking through the three phases, detect, is racism operating here? <laughs> Understand how is racism operating here? Um, and solutions do anti-racism interventions work. Um, and so really thinking about um, articulating a framework in which we really think about moving from the detection phase to the solutions phase. And any strategies that you think are critical to moving through those phases or stages? So I think intentionality is important. I think measurement is extremely important and it's a, a place that we don't emphasize enough in public health. And yeah, you're, the biostat nerd is going to get on her soapbox. We do not have a public health measurement journal the way psychology or other fields do. Measurement is so key to this work, um, but we don't really have place and space for people who are trying to develop these types of measurements to get them out and get them tested and see if they really work. Um, and I think it's important for us to focus on measurement um, because I think it's key for us to like collect really good empirical data and without solid measurement, that just can't happen. And even, I mean, the question about systems, that certainly provides an opportunity for cross-system change um, as well. I mean, one of the things that you pointed to is you know, the federal government had this idea to mandate electronic health records. And so per, certainly part of the idea was that if you went from one healthcare provider to another healthcare provider or a different system, is that your records could certainly follow you and allow sort of better continuity of information about you as a patient um, to hopefully improve care for you. And you noted a number of challenges, but those challenges exist in other and across other systems that create many barriers, many burdens, many challenges for people in accessing and utilizing 
services and resources in other systems as, as well? Yeah, I think, I mean, when you ask me, like, how would I address some of this? I'm like, some of it, if I had the answer, um, I'd be on a yacht somewhere and not on this podcast because I'd be rich. Um, you know, I think it's a complex web, often without a spider, as John Powell often talks about. Um, and it's hard to just pull on one piece of it because it's not going to detangle. Even if you could address sort of one piece of it, it actually won't detangle the web. The thing about racism, ooh, I don't know, it's so embedded in American society. Like we would have to really like rethink <laughs> our whole society in order to like reimagine, like to, because it's, it's so embedded in ways that I think people often don't think about. Um, so you talked about electronic medical records. Yes, your records could go to you wherever you go. Sometimes they will form into these nice fields where people can see them. Sometimes that means there's a PDF scanned and input into your electronic health file, right? Which is really just paper in electronic form. Well, who, which types of patients do you think more often have PDFs that are not searchable, that, you know, like that are not as fully operable as the other components? It tends to be low income, minority, non-English speaking um, patients. Even if I could address that, there's other issues around people who don't speak English. They would take longer to translate, to get the information they need. Right? There's, all, there's all of these other compounding issues that it is so embedded in how we function and how we work um, that at times I think it requires all of us actively working in our sort of spheres of influence. Pulling each on our piece of the web is the only way we'd be able to untangle it. So I'm going to go to our uh, last couple of questions here. And so earlier you mentioned a little bit about not only if you, you know, had the, <laughs> had the answer, would you be rich? But it also speaks to um, funders themselves. And, you know, what's your perspective on where funding has gone uh, or began? Where is it currently in terms of supporting projects focused on anti-racism and health policy and anti-racism and in the healthcare system. I think you know this literature better than me. Is it Shaw and Shaw who wrote the paper that talked about the industry of health disparity, like how health disparities, health disparities have become basically its own industry? I think it's Shaw, Ridley, and Ridley. And it's 2010. I think this idea about health disparities being a business is a profound one. We know that people profit off of racism, so that's not even a question. But even how, even how the National, in, National Institute of Health rolled out their anti-racism money, to me, was racist. <laughs> because in many instances, you had to already have funding to be eligible for this new funding. And we know that Black and Brown scholars are less likely to be funded. Anyway, I think the whole point is someone needs to go back to that 2010 paper by Shaw Ridley and Ridley and reframe it for anti-racism because I'm sure there are a lot of similarities. And I actually think some of the differences are worse. <laughs> like I just mentioned about how, how they rolled out the funding. And so one of the other examples you pointed to was a recent NIH initiative to address racism in health 
and you talked about the challenges of, you know, one of the barriers to entry is people already had to have funding and, you know, NIH has done its own report on the um, inequities in funding. And actually, I think recently NSF just published a report on inequities in funding across race, ethnicity, and gender of, um, of PIs and probably even types of institutions, I imagine, because we know that our HBCUs and Hispanically serving institutions um, have been underfunded, you know, through federal grants as, as well. And so that creates or leads to other challenges with addressing some of these, some of these important issues and topics. I hope Dr. Kamara Jones talked about it, this, because I think she's definitely more profound on this topic than I am. But the idea that we don't think we have genius in our ghettos, barrios, and reservations, and that like genius in this country comes from suburbs or however you want to define it. I think we are really missing. And you know, her whole idea that it's SAP society as a whole, like we're missing out on the potential scientific innovation because who, where we think science come from and who we think can be scientists. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree that we have this idea that you have to have been born and raised in certain communities, attended certain schools, attended certain colleges and universities, gone to certain grad schools to be considered a genius or to be listened to or to be heard or to have your ideas validated and even supported. So next question, um, what advice do you have for those entering this field? You've reluctantly referred to yourself as, as a senior, senior scholar, but having the title of professor actually deems and designates you as a senior scholar. So we'll, we are going to go with you are a senior scholar now um, in the field of public health, biostatistics. And so as a senior scholar, what what advice do you have to people entering into this space? I think work on things that you're passionate about. Work with people you enjoy spending time with. Um, trying to address racism is draining. Um, not just scientifically, but it can be draining emotionally. Uh, particularly with someone like me when I see data and I'm like, Man, y'all set this system up to be like this. Like, you know, to me, those are like the hardest things to like allow me to rest at night. And so I think being surrounded of a, with, by a community of people who are supporting you in your work um, and supporting you in your own personal wellness um, is important. Um, and being around people who, you know, make you better. I'm a nerd. I really only enjoy hanging around nerds. I don't want you to see pulling down my A. I've been like that since I was in school. So, you know, you know, being around your people um, that give you, you know, smart people make me smarter um, and I want to be smarter. Good advice. Good tips. And our, our last question, what is the legacy that Dr. Goodman would like to lead? We talked about you at your retirement party. What are the things that you would hope that people would say and share about you in your work? So I've actually been thinking about my legacy a lot recently. I don't know if that's what happens when you become a full professor, because um, I'm a long way from retirement. <laughs> um, but I think, I think I'm at a point where I realize 
I'm not going to change the world, but I want to spark the mind that does change the world. Um, and um, I think Dr. Scarlett Bellamy, who's another biostatistician, I think she says it best. I want to leave my field better than, than when I entered it. Um, biostatistics to me was not a very welcoming space for a Black woman. Um, and I hope at my retirement party, people are talking about the efforts that we made to change that for other people in the future. Well, one of the things they are definitely going to say is you are a unicorn. <laughs> I hate you. And you are the Beyonce of biostats. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and with that, I, I, I want to thank you on behalf of the Institute, um, the consortium for participating in, in this podcast. And I'll give you also an opportunity to share any other final thoughts, last words about anti-racism and health policy, anti-racism, healthcare, or, you know, just other things related to, you know, what we need to do to, to get there. Um, I would say thank you for having me. Um, I would like to say, um, if you are a community member in St. Louis, Clifton, Mississippi, or New York City, <laughs> um, interested in this space, please think about the Community Research Fellows Training Program that'll be happening um, this spring. Um, and I would also say I'm excited about the work we're doing at NYU with our new Center for Anti-Racism, Social Justice, and Public Health and the team that we have established there to do that work, but also that we're in community with other centers of anti-racism at other schools. Um, of public health to be part of the larger solutions um, that we're trying to work on. Thank you for listening to the Critical Features podcast. If you're feeling inspired and looking for more resources, please check out www.ihje.org backslash podcast for show notes and links to resources and to subscribe. Thanks for tuning in.